This is session two now on our seminar on racial harmony. And uh, just an explanation of why we're not doing what I said we were going to do last week, namely have a, I have a dream moment. And that's, we, we had three of them on video and our video uh, projector went kaput on us today. So we will show that another time. But we did have it planned and ready to go because I want you to get real live input here from people who think about this and bring different ethnic perspectives to bear on the issue at Bethlehem. So let's pray and ask God to take these 30 minutes and make them really fruitful for us as a church. Father, I pray that these folks who are here would be the leaven of truth and justice and love of those who are thinking about this on Wednesday nights so that it runs all through our church. I pray that you guide me now so that I speak the truth and I pray that it would be balanced and helpful for us. I pray, Father, that your name would be exalted and that relationships here between various ethnic groups would deepen and sweeten and that you would diversify us according to your own will and purpose in these kinds of ways. And I pray that we would become more and more manifestly the image of the body of Christ universal, that you are winning from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So come and help us, we pray now, because we ask it not in our own merit or desert, but in the name of Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us to bring us together with you in reconciliation and to bring us together with one another in loving harmony. Amen. We'll move into tonight's biblical content with just a few things to show you the relevance of these things. Again, I'll try to do this each time because it's very easy to do when you have the Internet and you can just have every piece of information in the universe, it seems like, at your disposal, either to ruin your life and marriage or to bless your ministry, depending on whether you use it carefully or not. So here's Time Magazine last week. Uh, one of the articles headlined, Blacks Need Not Apply. Um, when a black college freshman applied to join Alpha Gamma Delta at University of Georgia last August, most members of the all-white sorority were horrified as they gathered inside their neoclassical mansion to discuss the new applicants. The sisters of AJD singled out the black freshman and talked about her separately. Why does she want to go through white rush? Asked one sorority member. Another warned, if we had a black girl in our sorority, none of the fraternities would want to do anything with us. That's 2000. That's not 1965. But let me tell you a few stories from, from my, my background so you know where I'm coming from and what I bring to this. Um, Wednesday night, 1963. I don't remember what Wednesday night. It was earlier in the year because I know what happened at Christmas. Our church, what, I shouldn't tell you the name of the church. I get in trouble. When I name these things. So just my church that I grew up in um, voted on a Wednesday night. I was there. I remember my mother's there. My daddy was not there. He's off doing evangelism somewhere, 
voted on the issue of whether they would allow any blacks to, to stay in the service if they showed up. And the tension was absolutely incredible because there were doing sit-ins at, at Cresses and uh, other places around the city and, and, uh, and, and the thought was, okay, they're going to move on the churches. They, you know, these, these, these politically active folks are going to move on the churches and make a big scene on Sunday morning in these all white places. And should, should that be allowed? And, uh, the thought, the argument was, well, no, you shouldn't politicize Sunday morning. And, and so there was this motion before the church and it was voted on. My mother, to my recollection, was the only person who voted against this motion. So my mother is not a vintage Southerner. She grew up in Pennsylvania, went to a different set of schooling. She didn't, she didn't bring the same Deep South thing to the table. They moved there when I was not yet born, and then I was born six months later, and so I grew up there in this. But I remember getting home, and my mother, so distraught about this, couldn't believe what had just been done. That's, that's chapter number one in the story. My sister was 19 and engaged and was married that December in our church. We had a black maid. I'll come back to that in a, in a minute, the implications of that. Her name was Lucy. And uh, she was like one of the family, supposedly, and was there every Saturday morning. I knew her since the time I was little. Knew her till I left for college. And uh, my mother invited her to come to the wedding at the church with her whole family. I'd never seen a black and white Oak Baptist church in my life. And... Uh, and she was ready to do battle to have this uh, family in the wedding. And so uh, they showed up and the ushers didn't know what to do. Nobody in the history of this church had ever sat in the balcony. We never were big enough as a church, but there was a balcony. I'd never been up there. And one of these ushers, in a moment of genius, he thought, I guess, decided to solve the problem by not kicking them out, but taking them to the balcony. <sighs> My mother hit the roof. She went over there, dislodged those folks from, from their arm, and herself ushered them into the sanctuary and, and sat them down. So that's a little bit of my stock. However, I'm very much aware that the very having of Lucy as a maid, the way we had Lucy as a maid was part of a system that was also demeaning. Because I noticed as I got older, Lucy never ate with us. We loved Lucy. It never occurred to me that there was anything bad in her or the situation, but that too was part of the system. It's still going on. I go back to situations now in easily and I'm so keenly aware of this now. Here's this maid. Now this maid drives a very nice car and is paid very well, I gather, in this setting where I visit. And she prepares the meal, helps, and then we go sit down. 
And I go to her, I say, come eat with us. She oh no, I need to keep working. Well, I know what she really means. That would not work here. So that's a taste. That's a taste of what was, is, where I come from. And uh, it's huge. It's a huge demeaning thing that is in the mindset of these sorority girls. The house where I go to visit, the background I grew up in, both in church. Now, I got to connect this with a story I read this week about another kind of ethnic issue. Let me read you the story of the conversion of W.H. Auden. This is a quote from an article in uh, Biblical Journal of Biblical Counseling, this, this issue, by uh, John uh, Yenchko. I just recently read about W.H. Auden, one of the wonderful poets of the 1930s, who is a fair-haired European intellectual. His poetry captured the hearts of the intelligentsia of Europe, and they loved him. He went to fight in the Spanish Civil War against Franco and the fascists. He wanted to join the good guys and stand against the fascists, but while he was there, he discovered there were no good guys. That there were, in fact, horrible, evil atrocities on both sides. In 1940, he was converted. You know how he was converted? In one event, he went to the Yorkville section of Manhattan, and there he saw a movie produced by Hitler's Third Reich. It followed the invasion, the Blitzkrieg, through Poland. It was called Psyche in Poland, and it was the propaganda piece of their great victory. There were many Germans who had immigrated to the United States sitting in the theater. Whenever a Polish person was brought on the screen, usually being ferried about by one of the Germans, people in the audience would scream, kill him, kill him, in a frenzied commitment to the destruction of Germany's enemies. Auden, this magnificent, wonderful European enlightened intellectual, was so shocked and so horrified that he walked out of the theater stunned. He later said that one question ran through his mind. What response can my enlightened humanistic tradition give to this evil, to those who cry out for the blood of innocent victims? He saw the bankruptcy of humanism. He began to sense that the only answer to evil would be found in God and in the revelation of God in the Bible. And he was convicted of God's holiness and of his own sinfulness. And in 1940, he became a Christian. He began to write poetry that infuriated the European intellectuals, and they grew to despise him. But he didn't care. Now, here's the thought. Here's a man who sees an ethnic hatred manifest against innocent Polish people, and he gropes in his own system of thought for the explanation of this evil and how it might be redeemed, and he makes his way towards Christianity. And there are people making exactly the opposite move for exactly the same reasons. Because, for example, 1969, no, wait a minute, five. I was a freshman at Wheaton in 64. So I left that behind, headed off to Wheaton. A whole new world opens up to me, both religiously and culturally. And I begin to, to see things a little differently. I went back for the summer of 65 
big pizza gathering in my backyard. And uh, a, a sh- shirt tail relative. There it is, Noel. Shirt tail. Shirt tail. We were trying to figure out what that word was this afternoon. I said, Noel, what's that word about close relatives? You know, that schleck-to-schleck thing for the Swedes. And we got, a, we got an English thing for that. Shirt tail. There it is. Okay. A shirt tail relative there. And suddenly, he's talking about his membership in the KKK with pride and how good it is for the community. Now, this is a, this is a man that goes to my church. My mouth just, I didn't know what to do. He, he's, you know, he's probably 10 years older than I am at, at that time, and he still is. <laughs> Proportions change, but years don't change. Um, I was stunned. So here's the point. You know, it's nice to hear this story from W.H. Auden about him. That he made his way into Christianity as a solution to ethnocentrism. Well, here is a guy who finds himself at home and supported in his vision of what that horrific group stands for at home in the church. And there are people who know that and a lot of other things that the church has tolerated and supported. And they're making their way straight out to humanism. So what do you do when you find stories that will give you some comfort that Christianity has offered a solution to ethnic pride and other stories that show Christianity was part of the problem? Well, you know what you do? Go to the Bible to ask, did they get Christianity right? And you can ask, did did, did he get humanism right? And you should ask both. When I ask those questions, my answer is clearly, I don't see any solution in humanism that if you just have man and no God to explain evil and to deal with the redemption that would somehow solve the problem of the human heart, I don't see any answer there. But when I go to the Bible, I see a totally different thing than what my shirt tail relative was given into. So I think we, we just have to be honest about the history of Christianity with the Crusades and with the pogroms and with the cross burning and lynching and I mean just from ethnic group to ethnic group we just have to realize the the institutional church has blown it over and over again and when you're talking to people Jewish people or Polish people or German people or red yellow black and white people Everybody's got a story to tell, tell of a failure of an institutional church. And just say, don't, you don't need to fight that. You can just say, I know. And I'm sorry. But please, can we let Jesus have his say here? And realize that those who profess to be his followers may not be his followers. And those of us who are are so yet imperfect and on the way. Just like I think if you were honest, you would say you are and and then, and then start there instead of any kind of defensive posture that tries to say there's never been a problem. So that's, that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to go back to the Bible and I'm going to take tonight in the few minutes we have left. Uh, we won't nearly get far enough with this, but we'll do the best we can. And I'm going to take doctrinal pieces. And the first one will be all humans are made in the image of God. The implications of what we are. 
by virtue of creation, even apart from redemption in new creation in Christ. So tonight will just be in probably part of the next time, which will be in January, because we're into the holidays here and this is the end of the teaching time. Um, we'll just deal with what what we are by virtue of creation, then we'll deal with what we are by virtue of new creation. And both are massive. And, and it's good to take them separately, though I know what I'm going to talk about tonight could could sound like, well, you're leaving Christ out, you're leaving the cross out. Well, I'm not. I'm just going to take them in stages because on your way to the fullness of the understanding of the Bible, it's good to know what God designed for us in creation as well as redemption. And both of them have powerful words to say on this issue of, of race. So I've got eight points and we won't get through them all, but let's get through some of them. The first man and woman were created in the image of God. And some of these are so obvious and so plain that maybe we don't need to linger on them as, as, as much as we might on some of the others. So I think I read this text last week. Male and female created in the image of God. A basic, foundational, utterly profound and significant and full of implications text. You and, well, let's just not say you. I'm coming to that. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, which also needs to be supplemented with subsequent human beings who come not by virtue of direct creation totally, but through procreation, are in the image of God as well. I think that's one of the points of Moses writing this sentence. Genesis 5.3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, named and named Seth. Those two words, likeness and image, are the same two words back there in Genesis 1. And I think the only point here is to say, it goes on. It goes on. The, the first pair are not the only people in the image of God. Those who come from them are in the image of God. And the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 45 to 48 is, As is the earthy, Adam, so also are the earthy. And as is the heavenly, that's Christ, so also are the heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, so we're in the image of Adam, who was in the image of God, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly, that is, Jesus Christ. So just another pointer to how it goes on. And there are other texts we could talk about. So it's not just that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. Every one that flows from them as human is in the image of God. Third, being in his image, we are to image forth his glory. If you were to ask me, what does it mean to be in the image of God? We could argue till we're blue in the face about rationality, more morality, volition, things that would distinguish us from chimpanzees and whatever. And it's hard to put your finger, and the Bible doesn't say, doesn't pause and put in a little systematic theology comment on, here's what I mean by image of God. I think a better thing to do than try to pick any of those wonderfully human traits is to say, all of them, whatever they are, designed to image forth God in a way that no other being can. No other animal or being can. I will say to the north, this is Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. 
whom I have formed, even whom I have made. I think being created in the image of God means being created for the glory of God, imaging him forth as only humans can do it, who have those traits like God. So rather than quibble about the details, let's, let's take it as a mission, not just to subdue the earth, because that was the context, to subdue and have the animals in submission, have nature in submission, but to mirror him. Live in such a way that when people see you, they see a reflection of the character and the quality of God. That's a huge calling that we are to do. Fourth, man's extraordinary dignity above all other creatures is for the sake of magnifying the majesty of God. I think that's the point of Psalm 8. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name. In all the earth. And he's going to end that way. Verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's the point of the psalm. The point of the psalm is God is majestic. How does it relate to what else is in the psalm? Who have displayed your splendor above heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you've established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the avenger cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, and oh, if they had the Hubble telescope, they would have written it even more earnestly. The moon and the stars which you have made, you have ordained. What is man that you have taken thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Answer. You've made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. Who's, who's got majesty here? Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. So what's the connection? You have crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. There's, there's Genesis 1 coming out, see? You... Have put all things under his feet. That's Genesis 1, the cultural mandate. All sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish, the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And then he doesn't say, oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is man. He did say that under God, but he ends on the note of praise. So my way of constructing it is to say the point of our majesty in the in the dignity of being in the image of God is to make known the majesty of God. It begins with the majesty of God. It ends with the majesty of God. Our subordinate majesty above all the creatures is in the middle and the point of it is for God. Which means, at least, that if you demean or belittle anybody created to that end, you demean God. You rupture his purposes for all his people to show him as majestic because of the reflection of their being created in his image and dedicating themselves to that end. Now, I got started just a few minutes late, so I'm going to go a few minutes longer than 7.15. This is where we're supposed to stop, but it may take three or four more minutes. All humans being in the image of God implies the immense horror of unjustly harming or destroying a human being. Like, kill him, kill him. When you see a, a Polish person, not a soldier, just a person. So here's the, the Noahic covenant or the story of what God said to Noah at the end. 
And here, just jump in at verse 5, chapter 9 of Genesis. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God, he made man. Now, big issue, capital punishment, big issue, not the issue we're dealing with. There are really two separate issues in America today. The justice system that may make it impossible to exercise justice in the way it should be in the exercise of capital punishment and the principle of capital punishment over here. Let's deal with this. This text says capital punishment is the only fitting response to anybody who kills a human being. And the point there is not to make the taking of a life through capital punishment, an evidence of the small value of a life is exactly the opposite. Human beings are so incredibly unique and significant that a high-handed crime to take another human being's life, the only way to settle accounts and uphold the dignity of human life is to kill that person. To get the logic, at least get the logic here. The image of God in man is huge in this, in this ongoing covenant. So, when we deal with capital punishment, which is not my aim, keep in mind that it is a very complex issue in our culture. Even when you settle the principle, I feel settled about the principle that it is biblical and right to believe in capital punishment. How to implement it is another story and a complicated one. Okay? Just wanted you to see the principle there rooted in the image of God. Um, real quick. All human beings in the image of God implies that all this unique dignity governs our speaking about them and to them. James 3, 8. No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men. Kill them, kill them, send them to hell, damn you! Who have been made in the likeness of God. See the connection there? That who this, this is kind of a gasping, how can this be? How can you bless the Lord and curse men out of the same mouth when men have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. So that's an argument apart from the redemption in Jesus Christ. I mean, that's going to bring huge new arguments to the table for why you don't curse other people. But this argument is simply rooted in the fact every human being is created in the image of God. To talk of them in any other way than with a, a careful recognition of that extraordinary dignity is fit ought not to be. Number seven, the common origin of all humans and consequent equality and worth and unworthiness implies that racial or ethnic pride is wrong. And I think I better wait. This text is too important to fly over. We'll pick it up here in January. 
Acts 17. But those Athenians, those Athenians, line, start here, um, that Paul is talking to, they were very proud of being Athenians. Very proud. Everybody else was a barbarian. That's where the word came from, barbarian. And Paul's, he gets one sermon, he gets one sermon on the Acropolis, and what does he say? All human beings started from one man. Why does he say that? Well, come in January and we'll talk about it. But we have a business meeting to move into. Everybody, visitor or not, will, or is welcome to stay, but we'll take about a two-minute break. I'll pray. Two-minute break. If you need to go, go. And then we'll get started and important things in the offing here. Father in heaven, burden us, I pray, with looking upon people of every color, every shade, every kind of accent, every kind of shape. Burden us to look upon one another first with awe. With awe and reverence. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.